Increment 121 of Hebrews 2020 will be kind of a follow-up and another part of our motif called the throne of grace. What's fascinating is the juxtaposition of that word, the throne, with the term grace. And we ended our last increment with a kind of a heartfelt prayer in which we illustrated what it is to do what the writer asks us to do and urges us all to do, to approach the throne of grace with outspokenness, with great freedom of speech and boldness, and to grab a hold of mercy, get a grip on mercy, and to receive grace to help to assist, to support, that's timely and targeted, we could say. So, Father, we pray that you continue to enlighten the eyes of our heart to the end that we see Jesus, and in him we see a solidarity of saved mankind. We ask this in his name. Amen. The throne that we are urged to approach in Hebrews 4.16, is the place from which God dispenses his endless grace, for his mercy endures forever. His grace is endless. It is not a throne of judgment, but a throne of grace that we're dealing with here. Other places in the Bible says that God set up his throne for judgment, but we have come to learn, especially through Romans, that God's judgment is a rectifying judgment, a justifying judgment, and ultimately a saving and restorative judgment. This has led theologians to conclude, and again, I have to keep reminding myself that this Hebrews is not just a kind of a pop study but a real theological, hopefully a fairly serious theological exegesis of this holy homily we call Hebrews, a holy heavenly homily for the 21st century. And so I'm not shy about being a little theological. I've said before many times, I'll say it again, I believe that the pastors who are going to be effective in the next increment of history in our nation and really across the world are going to have to be not just pastor teachers but pastor theologians have a real grip on who and what God is and the various categories of theology like Christology and Soteriology and Hamartiology and Angelology and Demonology and Satanology and Anthropology and Eschatology and Ecclesiology and bibliology, too. So this idea of the throne of grace has led theologians to conclude, and I think to rightly conclude, that the so-called last judgment will not be a judgment in the way we consider a judicial action that imposes a punitive sentence on some or on many or even on all. Indeed, it will be an act of grace 
instead of judgment. It will be an act of grace. Now, I'm citing Eberhard Jungel here, and it's from a book that I recommended in previous studies called Militant Grace that's edited by Philip Ziegler. He's also done a wonderful book on eternal life. But Eberhard Jungel, that's J-U-N-G-E-L, Eberhard, is a prominent theologian, and Philip Ziegler, citing him, wrote this. As a work of the, quote, one who brings salvation, final judgment will itself be a grace. For to be judged by Christ is a blessing which befalls humanity. The philanthropy of judgment, he goes on to write, follows from the identity of the judge who is love. A love made manifest, quote, in the unity of life and death in favor of life. For the sake of the wayward creation. What a phenomenal quote that is. Again, found in Philip Ziegler's book, Militant Grace. Short book, very dense, takes a couple months to get through it if you're a serious student of the word and of what needs to be kind of understood today. Militant Grace is a good place to go. In the same footnote, Ziegler cites church dogmatics. In the same page, that is, he cites church dogmatics by Karl Barth. And he says CD 41217, which means Christian or church dogmatics, volume 4, section 1, page 217. So what I did is decided to look that up for myself. I have a copy of that. And here's a quote from it. This is the quote I think he was referring to in Church Dogmatics, Volume 4 on Reconciliation, and the first part of it, and page 217. He says, Barth writes this, He is the Savior of the world, insofar as in a very definite and most astonishing way, he is also its judge. Now, let me just say that again. Some of these things these guys write, and men and women theologians I've read recently, say things that to me are, I put on the side margins of my books I read, exquisite, or sometimes even sublime. This quote is one of those. He is the savior of the world, insofar as in a very definite and most astonishing way, he is also its judge. Now all of this for us is going to the juxtaposition of the word throne and grace. Savior and judge. Judge and savior in one. Throne of grace. Authorization and grace. One. But he goes on, this quote goes on for a brief paragraph, and it says, And it is to the point, 
if we remember that the judge is not simply or even primarily the one who pardons some, then he has parenthesis, perhaps many, and perhaps none at all, and condemns the rest, parenthesis, perhaps many, and perhaps all, close parenthesis, whose judgment, therefore, all have to fear. Basically and decisively, and this is something we must never forget when we speak of the divine judge, he is the one whose concern is for order and peace, who must uphold the right and prevent the wrong, so that his existence and coming and work is not in itself and as such a matter for fear, but something which indicates a favor, the existence of one who brings salvation. Now in this phrase, one who brings salvation, we can hear an echo of Hebrews 9.28. That's what I see in it. That's what I heard in it. Because Hebrews 9.28, a verse, again, keeps on popping up. So also the Messiah, having been once offered to assume the sins of many, will appear a second time not to bear sin, that is literally without sin, as in Hebrews 4.15, but to bring salvation, literally for salvation to those who are awaiting him. Now we've already mentioned those who are waiting for him is all of creation. Whether they know they're waiting for him or not. We may also recall Titus 2.11 and 3.4, which we dealt with in increment 120. The throne of grace is an astonishing revelation. Ultimately, the throne of grace is the mercy seat on which the blood of Messiah was sprinkled. Ultimately, the throne of God and the Lamb, as it's called in Revelation, is one with the mercy seat on which the blood of the Lamb was sprinkled for the glory the Shekinah dwelt between the cherubim above the mercy seat. So God enthroned is enthroned upon the mercy seat. The dispensary of mercy to all, we might say, if we were serious about Romans 11.32. So ultimately, the throne of God and the Lamb is one with the mercy seat on which the blood of the Lamb was sprinkled for the sins of the whole world. Mercy seat is what hilasterion is sometimes called in the Greek text. It's a good word for it, really. It shouldn't be apologized for. Because God's unstoppable resolution is to show mercy to all. Romans 11.32, a verse that can't get enough press, especially in our time. The throne of grace is the place where we not only take hold of mercy. That's a real grasp, a realistic and practical grasp on misery-relieving mercy, on scenario-changing mercy, on providential benefits from God. 
and grace for timely help. This is not just general grace. This is targeted grace for specific scenarios in life. And we are to pray specifically and make petitions specifically. Our language doesn't have to be fancy and a request doesn't have to be long and sometimes pastoral. We pastors sometimes like to pray long prayers. It doesn't have to be long at all. It can be bold, short, and to the point. We might not even have time to say, in Jesus' name, but we're aware as we pray that we are, of course, in Jesus' name, praying. In 1 Kings 10.18, echoed in 2 Chronicles 9.17, King Solomon is said to have made a very large ivory throne. And John refers to a great white throne in Revelation 20.11 that evokes all kinds of images of terror. But in 1 Kings 10.18, along with 2 Chronicles 9.17, King Solomon had made a large ivory throne. We could call it a great white throne. And he overlaid it with gold. Now the Ark of the Covenant was also overlaid with gold, according to Exodus 25.11. And the mercy seat that covered it was also made of pure gold in Exodus 25.17. Once again, we have here a connection of the throne, the Ark of the Testament, and the mercy seat. The great white throne, therefore, that John sees in Revelation 20, verse 11, that has evoked such terror in so many, is ultimately associated with the mercy seat. In showing mercy to all, Romans 11.32, the old heavens and the earth flee away as they come forth as the new heavens and the new earth. The false selves of all humanity are consumed as their new selves come forth. And death and Hades is the name of the one who is thrown into the lake of fire to be annihilated forever. In Revelation, the lamb who was slaughtered, Romans 5, or Revelation 5, 6, is seated on the throne. In Hebrews, God says to Jesus, Your throne, God, is for the age of the age. That's the endless age that begins with his resurrection from the dead and his exaltation. Psalm 45, 6, Septuagint 44, 7. And to Jesus, God also says, you are a priest for the age. In Psalm 110, 4, Septuagint 109, 4. In Psalm 93, 2, not cited at least directly in Hebrews, the scripture says, your throne has been established from the beginning. You are from eternity. And in Jeremiah seventeen twelve, a throne of glory on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. And again, Yahweh sits enthroned forever. 
He has established his throne for judgment, says Psalm 9-7. His judgment, however, as we have learned, is one of a rectifying, justifying, and therefore restorative and saving judgment. And as the scripture says, with a reminiscence of Hebrews 4.13, in Psalm 11.4, Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes watch. He examines everyone. Maybe that was alluded to in Hebrews 4.13. On top of this, Jürgen Moltmann wrote the following about the last judgment. In fact, I think Ziegler's article in Militant Grace and maybe in his other book on, the, on eternal life, he actually blends Jürgen Moltmann with Eberhard Jungel and their take on the last judgment. It's one of the best articles I've ever seen and ever read, and it's well worth reading. But Jürgen Moltmann wrote the following about the last judgment. We've already taken Jungel's take, and Bart is chiming in on his understanding. So in a theological exegesis of Hebrews, wouldn't it be just right to put in a quote about the last judgment from one of my faves, Jürgen Moltmann, who wrote this. The eschatological last judgment is not a prototype for the courts of the kingdoms of empires or empires. This judgment has to do with God and his creative justice. I don't know anybody who's used the word creative justice other than Moltmann. Let me start the quote again. Every time I read this quote, it's like I'm reading it for the first time, and pardon my commentary. The eschatological last judgment, capitalizing L-N-J, judgment, last judgment, is not a prototype for the courts of kingdoms or empires. This judgment has to do with God and his creative justice and is quite different from the forms our earthly justice takes. What we call the last judgment is nothing other than the universal revelation of Jesus Christ. That's sublime. That's exquisite. Let me say it again. What we call the last judgment is nothing other than the universal revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter called it in 1 Peter 1.7, incidentally. He goes on to say, and the consummation of his redemptive work. Let me back up slightly. What we call the last judgment is nothing other than the universal revelation of Jesus Christ and the consummation of his redemptive work. No expiatory penal code will be applied in the court of the crucified Christ. That's another sublime statement. See, a lot of these theologians, let me interrupt for a moment, Mr. Moltman, Herr Moltman, a lot of these theologians, when they write books like The Coming of God, like Moltman wrote, or Church Dogmatics, like Barth wrote, or Jungle's writings, or Fleming Rutledge in her book on understanding the crucifixion of Christ, these are really boiling down a lot of years and decades of study and wisdom and theological understanding. It's a kind of a condensation. So we have the benefit today, like never before, through the specialty of research, to read 
the theological insights and test them, yes, enter into dialectic with them, yes, but also use them in an interpretation of the scripture. It just, it's just magnificent. It's a wonderful thing. I'm constantly glad and grateful to God for it. So I'll say it again. Then This is continuing and closing the quote of Jürgen Moltmann. No expiatory penal code, P-E-N-A-L, will be applied in the court of the crucified Christ. No punishments of eternal death will be imposed. The final spread of the divine righteousness that creates justice serves the eternal kingdom of God. Not the rest, the final restoration of a divine world order that has been infringed. Judgment at the end is not an end at all. It's the beginning. Its goal is the restoration of all things for the buildup of God's eternal kingdom. That's coming of God, Jürgen Moltmann, pages 250 and 251. On page 373 in his footnote, footnote 229, yeah, there's lots of footnotes in these theological books, Moltmann quotes P. Stuhlmacher, a German scholar, evidently, S-T-U-H-L-M-A-C-H-E-R, from Biblisch Theologie, from Tübingen University, 1992, he quotes this, I guess, Peter Stuhlmacher, and from page 326 and 308, where Stuhlmacher wrote concerning Paul's typical view of the last judgment, and he said this, final judgments, this is again speaking of Paul's typical view, final judgment is not an act of divine retaliation, but the event and the longed-for event of the final establishment of God's justice, which creates salvation over and against all powers of evil. Why don't these theologians get some press in this time of slipshod dilettantes who claim to be theologians and who write books like Left Behind. Why don't these guys? Well, I'll tell you why. why do, they are getting press now. And I'm thanking God for it. Moltmann concludes his chapter entitled The Restoration of All Things. Well worth reading. If you can't ferret your way through or plow your way through the coming of God, you might want to just try his chapter in that book it's worth buying the book just for the chapter called The Restoration of All Things. In, he concludes his chapter entitled The Restoration of All Things in his book The Coming of God with this astounding paragraph. What are we doing today? We're just hovering around, rallying around the throne of grace and seeing the juxtaposition, the astonishing juxtaposition of the word thronos with caritas, throne of grace. He wrote this. This was the last paragraph in his book on the restoration, his chapter on the book, in the book Coming of God on the Restoration of All Things. Quote, the last judgment is not a terror. 
In the truth of Christ, it is the most wonderful thing that can be proclaimed to men and women. Let me ask you this. Does this defy your original views of the last judgment? Well, then, well, it should. Well, it should. Jesus defied every expectation of people who expected a militant Messiah. He came as the Lamb of God. That's not to say he can't manifest himself as the Lion of the tribe of Judah anytime he wants to. But I'll start that quote again. The last judgment is not a terror. In the truth of Christ, it is the most wonderful thing that can be proclaimed to men and women. It is a source of endlessly consoling joy to know. Not just that the murderers, speaking of abusers, the murderers will finally fail to triumph over their victims, but that they cannot in eternity even remain the murderers of their victims. The eschatological doctrine about the restoration of all things has these two sides. God's judgment, which puts things to rights, and God's kingdom, which awakens to new life. I thought of all these things when I thought of the throne of grace in Hebrews 4.16 that we are to approach. So to me, all of this is reflective of the phrase, the throne of grace. Here's the practical end to this, though. The practical app. The throne of of a king, of King Solomon, as I said, was a large ivory throne and overlaid with pure gold. The mercy seat was also overlaid with pure gold. The great ivory throne of Revelation 20 must be viewed then in the light of the throne of grace. In the end, the false selves of people are destroyed in their gracious and glorious transformation, and death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire, consumed utterly in the consuming fire of God's love. We already know that God's throne is the place from which mercy is received and grace is found. So between the manifestation of God's love in the crucified Christ and the universal manifestation or revelation of Jesus Christ again in the last judgment, we have what I call the meantime. And I use a play on words, mean in the meantime and in this sometimes mean time. In the meantime, in this sometimes very mean time, at the junction of the ages, in this clashing struggle that exists between the going out of the evil age and the breaking in of the messianic endless age in which we're living, in this interval between the saving judgment of the cross and the saving last judgment, where its universal, merciful impact will be gloriously manifested. The crucified Christ, in this meantime, our Savior and our Judge, is our great Archpriest. Standing by to offer assistance 
support, fortification. And he stands by to offer it in the form of his enriching, fortifying, elevating, strengthening grace. For the same reason, we who lack wisdom are urged to ask God for it. We don't know what to do in a lot of situations in life. We don't know what to do. So we go to God in James 1.5 and say, honestly, Lord, I don't know what to do. Grant me wisdom. So he doesn't reprimand us for asking because once again, his throne is the throne of grace. And he is a gracious God. He's called the God of all grace. Moreover, he has made Christ Jesus to be wisdom for us in 1 Corinthians 1.30. So we're commanded as confessors of Jesus as the Son of God to pray without ceasing. Now the moment you hear that, Pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. If you're like me, you're thinking, that's a tall order. And sometimes, if we try to do that in the energy of the flesh, always praying. I one time sat in a, in a, in a waiting room in a hospital, and next to me there was a man, every six minutes, his watch alarm went off. And I said, I had to pick this cubicle with this guy in it, of all the cubicles that are now filled up in this hospital waiting room, I've got to sit next to this guy every six minutes. And he told me, he says, you'll have to excuse me, but my watch alarm goes off every six minutes so I can thank God for his righteous judgment. And I guess that was his way of not only praying without ceasing, but being a royal pain in the neck. He, didn't, he said a few other things to me, but I remained rather silent and was glad for the use of a mask at the time. It doesn't mean that. doesn't mean, in fact, he's not praying without ceasing if only prays every six minutes. Now, we can either view this demand, this, well, it is a demand, it's a command, it's not a suggestion, it's a commandment to us who confess Jesus as Son of God. Pray without ceasing. Now, we can either view this as an arduous duty or as a privilege to be imitators of our great archpriest and fellow intercessors with him. For he always lives to make intercession for us to save us to the uttermost, says Hebrews 7.25. So when we're praying without ceasing, what are we doing? We're acting in mimesis or a, an imitation by participation with our great archpriest who always, he's always interceding. You say, does Jesus talk a lot in heaven? Yes, he talks a lot to his father about us and for us. He's ever interceding. He ever lived. He lives for it. You say, what do you live for? Well, I live for pizza. I live for this. I live to go shooting. I live for golf. I live for my wife. I live for my family. I live. Jesus lives to make intercession for us. 
because his goal is to save us to the uttermost. And that means not only to save us to the uttermost in eternity, but to save us in every single situation we get ourselves into on earth. Without him, we can do nothing. So when it says pray without ceasing, I can't do that without him. Without Jesus, we can certainly not pray without ceasing. But as we abide in him, which is a very restful thing, and as he abides in us by his spirit, his spirit makes intercession in us ceaselessly for all the saints, for all people, and for those in authority that we might live lives that are unmolested by governments, unmolested by tyranny, lives that are quiet and productive. That's why we pray for those in authority. We pray for all the saints. We're always doing that. It's When it becomes as natural as breathing, it loses the stigma of being an arduous duty. When it becomes an under, when we understand that we are actually participating with our faithful archpriest and our merciful archpriest in constant intercession, it really comes off rather as a glorious privilege. And the offering really of priests, as Hebrews 13.15 says. So don't be weary and don't faint because we ought to pray always without fainting. But our prayer is indefatigable if we understand and we do not become weary in it if we understand that it is a participation with our great archpriest who ever lives to make intercession for us. What a privilege. And we thank you for it, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.